You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Many times people find out that we're biblical scholars and archaeologists. So they, the first question is, that must be so wonderful finding out, you know, all the ways that the archaeology just proves the Bible. And I say, yeah, it is, except when it doesn't. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, a nice way to put it, Jonathan. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. Super excited for this episode today. I've got not one, but two excellent guests on the show. Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott, she is Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible Old Testament at Baylor University. Also, uh, my predecessor here at Jessup, she'd been a longtime Old Testament professor here at Jessup. And uh, then uh, Dr. Jonathan Greer, he is a visiting professor in the Anthropology Department at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. He was my former colleague at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. So both good friends, really love them. They are Old Testament scholars and archaeologists. They both specialize in various aspects of food practices in the ancient Near East, done a lot of work, different sites, but they both uh, take interest in different facets. Cynthia is focused on food in the home and food preparation and what that can teach us about life in ancient Israel. Jonathan's focused on practices, sacrificial practices and uh, animal bones. He's known as the animal bone guy. He had a a bone lab at our school. So I I wanted to have them both on because I thought it'd be a fun experiment, something new to do to have this three-way conversation, talking to two archaeologists about what archaeology can teach us about the Bible. So that's what we're going to get into. And with that, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our episode with Drs. Schaefer, Elliott, and Greer. back, everybody, to the podcast. I'm super excited. We've got a treat today. I've got two guests. I'm not an archaeologist. I don't know a lot about archaeology, but I know some really good archaeologists. My dear friends, doctors Schaefer Elliott and Greer. A lot of cool connections here. Cynthia was my predecessor here at William Jessup. She is now at Baylor teaching there. Really great school. Cool to have that transition. And then Jonathan was my colleague at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary for four years. He is now a professor at Grand Valley State University, also in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Two wonderful human beings, incredible archaeologists, Bible scholars. The accolades go on and on and on. So thank you both for being on here. It's really a treat to talk to you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah. I I guess just to start off, would both of you mind just giving us a very brief kind of background of your journey? What drew you into the world of biblical scholarship and archaeology? How did you get into that? Yeah, just give us a little bit of a a taste of what that that looks like. Maybe, Cynthia, if you want to go first. Sure. I Like you mentioned, I'm at Baylor, and I love that intersection between text and material culture. And so for me, loving reading the Bible and growing up in, um, you know, a Protestant Christian home um, that was very present Mm. in in our home. But there was something about ancient history, in particular ancient Israel and Judah, that just always fascinated me. And when I was in college, 
I uh, went on a historical geography tour and we did a dig for a day at Tel Marasha. <laughs> Jonathan knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And we found nothing. <laughs> Even animal bones? We did. We found pigeon bones. That's true. We did. That's something. Where... Yes, yeah. it is. And at, But at the time, it I mean, it still doesn't, it didn't bother me at all, but because there, there was something about that moment, I can I can pinpoint it to that moment for sure. Because <laughs> I had never really thought about archaeology much before, but at that moment, I thought this is history that you can put your your hands on, mm. that you can feel and touch um, something tangible. And so I've just been pursuing it ever since then. So there's something about, for me, the daily life of ancient Israel and Judah that really fascinates me. I mean, all of it fascinates me, but that's what I um, tend to focus on because that's really just, I find just so illuminating. Yeah. And within your field, you know, people specialize in different things. So Cynthia, you're, you're one of your areas of specialties is food. And would you talk to us? Well, different facets, different facets of food, right? (laughs) Jonathan focuses on the animals, uh, you know, and and Cynthia on the the making of food and all of what goes into that. So how did you get into, could you give us a little bit of a, a background just briefly on like your focus on food and how that sheds light on the world? of ancient Israel? Yeah, this could quickly become a food-related podcast <laughs> with the two of us here. We should have had uh, we should have had a barbecue going while we had the, this conversation. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a in a food-focused family, um, and it, it was when I was you know looking at topics for my PhD, I was trying to think of something that did that intersection between text and material culture and that also illuminated daily life, but could also have the potential to illuminate uh, women's roles. Mm. Um, so, cause one of the things I'm really interested in is women gender in ancient Israel and Judah. And so when I stumbled across this, it was um, just sitting at my kitchen table and going, oh, wow, not a lot's been done on this. And if I could tell a little bit of a story, when I was started my PhD, Jonathan was starting his and a couple other friends that became friends um, were also starting theirs. And we were also all doing food related topics. And we all contacted this one scholar who was at the time at Cambridge, Nathan McDonald, who Mm -hmm. had just done his, you know, what did the ancient Israelites eat or he was about to do it. And somebody had put us all in contact with him. So he kind of got this groupie of foodies (laughs) together. (laughs) And um, that's how we all became connected. So at that same time, there was a few of us who were getting interested in food from a variety of perspectives. So for Mm. me, it was more of the the daily life, mm-hmm. um, how you could see that both in the material culture th- in households in particular. So um, mm. not necessarily feasting so much in elite context, but more daily life context. Daily life of an ancient Israelite. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Jonathan, what about you? How did you get into this whole thing? <laughs> yeah, well, like many of us, and I'm, I'm sure this is part of Cynthia's story as much as we sometimes all lament it, you know, Indiana Jones, right? Um, so 
they there was this perfect storm of that movie coming out and then a couple of years later my dad who's um, uh, was a pastor congregational pastor in new england took a sabbatical and he took the whole family and we lived in jerusalem for four months so here i am as a junior high kid you know with I did own a bull whip. I didn't bring it to Israel at state at home, but I did did purchase a bull whip at a flea market, have to admit. Uh, and I'm crawling around in my backyard uh, looking for the lost ark. Didn't find it, but there was an, uh, a Roman aqueduct and it was all, uh, you know, wasn't part of an ar- archaeological dig. So I'm literally crawling around on my hands and knees, mapping it out and drawing diagrams and uh, something was planted in, in that time that never left me. And my dad was doing one of these historical geography immersion programs. And so got to tag along with him on all of these digs. The magazine, Biblical Archaeology Review, was just starting to be published. And so I'd just pour over issues of that. Returned to it a little bit in college, but it was really in PhD studies where uh, leaned into that more fully. And uh, well, actually, prior to that, in, in my seminary studies at Gordon Conwell and had a, a relationship with Harvard University in terms of exchange classes and took a whole bunch of archaeology classes there. And that that just lit the fire, um, started getting involved in, in excavations and met Cynthia and others, yeah. as she mentioned, in PhD schools and I, I kind of um, work on the other end of the sp- food spectrum in terms of the elite feasting, um, mm-hmm. especially related to sacred feasts and ancient Israelite sacrifice. Yeah, that's so cool. And Jonathan had a uh, a bone lab, which got transferred over. But when we were at GRTS, <laughs> it was notorious. There was this bone lab right across the uh, parking lot from like where the classrooms were for the seminary. Everybody knew there were animal bones in this building. <laughs> and you could go in and, and look at them. And it was really cool. More infamous was the goat sacrifice, if you remember. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was a goat sacrifice. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't really a sacrifice, but that's how it went down in student lore. But it was... Was, uh, yeah. we I did a, a goat butchery experimental archaeology project with some of the the students who were taking the lab course with me and it was it was fascinating this overlaps with some of uh, Cynthia's work as well that it, it was started as a zoo archaeological experiment you know where do we where do the cut marks show up so mm. we butchered this whole goat from freshly killed down to the pot quite literally but for many of of the folks involved in this this was the first time they had been that close to animal death and yeah. dismemberment and processing and so it turned into a, a wonderful discussion of the ethics of meat eating and the industrial meat systems that do horrific violence to god's creation um creatures fellow creatures uh, in our earth. So it was in- interesting. Went in a different direction, but we all know that as educators. Sometimes uh, you gotta, <laughs> the best yeah. lessons are unplanned. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, and, you know, you can't accuse us of not having hands-on training at a seminary if you're doing that kind <laughs> right. of stuff, right? <laughs> it was off campus. The dean oh, made okay. that very clear. It had yeah. to be off campus. <laughs> John, John was too smart for that, huh? Right. That's cool. That's cool. Um yeah, thanks both for that. That's really great. Would you mind maybe each of you pitching in a little bit? I think a lot of people have 
well, we brought up Indiana Jones, certain ideas or conceptions about what archaeology is and what archaeologists do. So thinking people in the church, when they're thinking of archaeologists that work on areas that intersect with biblical history and things like that, what does archaeology contribute to the study of the Bible? Many scholars, my, myself included, spend most of our time with texts, interpreting texts. What is it? What's the difference between interpreting a text and interpreting um, an artifact or, you know, something without any writing on it? Um, <laughs> what does that look like? And could you give us maybe uh, an example or two that's pertinent to maybe to your your own journey of something in archaeology that maybe helped you read the Bible better or differently? Uh, I think that'd be really cool to hear. Well, I'm sure Cynthia has the same experience where many times people find out that we're biblical scholars and archaeologists. So they the first question is, oh, you know, if it's it's from a, a certain type of tradition, that must be so wonderful finding out, you know, all the ways that the archaeology just proves the Bible. And I say, yeah, it is, except when it doesn't. <laughs> you know, right, or like right, that. right. That's uh, a nice way to put it, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think there is some, you, you talk about, Max, kind of the average person within a, a church or a confessional setting who thinks about the intersection of Bible and archaeology. It's very monolithic, and they, mm-hmm. and they forget that's actually actually just one tiny tiny part of what archaeo- how archaeology and the bible relate and sometimes it's it's a problematic relationship when we uncover things that seem to conflict with our understanding of what the text is communicating and so we need a broader understanding of how archaeology and biblical studies intersect that focuses on illuminating biblical texts Uh, much like Cynthia does with the daily life of ancient Israel. What was it like to be an ancient Israelite? What did they eat? What what were their social relations like? Then also some of the elite contexts as well. What was religion like? How did it actually play out in the lives of an ancient Israelite? And then I've come to where I even delight in the complexity of Mm. the relationship between the Bible and, and, and text, because they're not they're not using the same data sets. They're not they're not telling the same story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that that tension is what keeps it interesting mm-hmm. and reminds us to be more nuanced in our understanding of of the biblical text and what it's actually saying, mm-hmm. uh, as well as archaeology. There's been a, a big shift to the hard sciences and archaeology that I think. The negative side of that is sometimes it boosts our confidence that we still need to remember we're working with teeny tiny bits of data from different sets and we're extrapolating these uh, wonderful mega theories that eh, maybe <laughs> right, right. So everything's very provisional within archaeology. Yeah, a lot of interpretation involved, as with text, so too with material culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you got could it. You, do you have an example, Jonathan, maybe at the top that comes to mind of a place where either there, you could say there's tension or that maybe archaeology might help shed light on a biblical text that if one were, let's say, to just read it at surface value, they might think something different. Sure, I can give an example that covers uh, a number of bases, actually, from the site where I dig. Uh, at Tel Dan, the most famous discovery, which I had nothing to do with, and it was before I joined the team, but uh, the Tel Dan Stella uh, discovered mm-hmm. first fragment in 1993, second fragment in 1994. And it's most famous for this single line referring to a king that is slain who is from the house of David. 
And this is the first epigraphic reference to the biblical King David or to the dynastic house of the biblical King David within 150-ish years of, of David's reign and in terms of how, how we can reconstruct it from biblical texts. So quite exciting, but folks forget that we're actually reading in the old Aramaic Stella by an Aramean king, probably Hazael, who's claiming victory over two kings, the king of Israel, identified as such, and the king of the house of David. So these are the kings of Israel and Judah. Um, they, their names are in broken context, but it's almost certainly uh, Joram and Ahaziah, respectively. So this is a story we know from the Bible in 2 Kings 9 and 10 with the coup of Jehu and this um, intolerant Yahwistic uh, revival that obliterates the house of, of Ahab north and south. Well, in the biblical text, right, right, so there's the amazing connection point. Here we have mention of the dynastic house of David, and there have been some other readings that have tried to come up with alternative readings, but not convincingly so. Most agree, house of David. But the biblical text, this is Jehu who kills these kings. In this text, this is very clearly the Aramean king, uh, unnamed, but probably Hazael, who's claiming victory. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, this creates some tension and invites us to dig in a little bit more um, in, in both regards. So we can bring some nuance to our understanding of the biblical text, uh, some nuance to the, the function of royal apologetic in the 9th century yeah. BCE, to where this Stella dates to. And also um, thinking through uh, even comparative literature. There's a, a wonderful parallel in the records of Assyria, uh, where Shalmaneser III, in, uh, in, in an earlier text, in the monolith inscription, he's recounting some of his conquests, and he mentions that uh, some local folks overthrew their ruler, Giamu, and they killed him. Well, 15 years later, he's writing about the same episode in his, uh, in his royal uh, analytic account, and he says, I killed Giamu. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so you see, there's a, a fluidity here in the terms of how kings engage royal rhetoric, how um, apologies function, how um, ancient Near Eastern historiography is done. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we create tensions by coming with a very flat reading to the biblical text or a, a literalist approach to the biblical text that doesn't account for the fact that this is ancient literature communicating in ancient ways. Yeah, really well said. Thanks, Jonathan. That's awesome. Hey, Cynthia, do you have anything uh, you would want to add to that? Your thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Jonathan made the point that we have to keep in mind that the biblical text is an ancient Near Eastern literature. And I think when, as he mentioned, having kind of that flat reading, when people look at the biblical text and they think that the Bible, Hebrew Bible and archaeology just kind of go hand in hand, that they are supporting each other 100%. I would love that if that was true, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. And it, it makes... It makes things a little, quite a bit more challenging, but that's also when we do have to keep in mind that the biblical text, you know, how, how the Hebrew Bible, the way we think it was written and compiled and redacted and, and preserved over a very long period of time 
that we don't have these court reporters who are sitting there, you know, taking notes. Well, I should go the other way, taking notes <laughs> <laughs> and saying, OK, wait a minute, David. Now say that again. Let me write this down. You know that our perception of how history or rather historiography is documented is is very, very different than the ancients. Mm. And we tend to impose our modern historical standards on them. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's quite fair because here we are thousands of years later, separated by gra you know great amount of time and space and um, and imposing our standards on them. I mean, we all have, you know, our phones and our back pockets and we can re we can record whatever is happening or, or rather not happening. So mm -hmm. we tend to have a very skewed view of how things are documented mm -hmm. and we apply that to the biblical text instead of thinking about, OK, who wrote these? Who could have possibly written these texts? What was their context? Um, I think majority of biblical scholars, Hebrew Bible scholars would say that majority of the texts were were probably written by elite urban men over you know very long period of time and then redacted compiled and redacted and all that stuff but that your average going back to that average person not just women being left out but your average man <laughs> woman and child right they they really probably had nothing to do with that process mm -hmm. at all and in fact we do have to question, okay, well, how, how much access did they or knowledge did they really have of the things that we assume that are in the text that everybody knew about? So mm -hmm. when we do archaeology, we are left with what's been left behind, right? So it's a very different set of data. You know, we've got the literature where people have intentionally written things down in such a way mm -hmm. as to document a certain set of perspectives and theologies mm -hmm. and ideologies, as opposed to the material culture where we have to keep in mind that this is not all of it. This is just the fragments. This is just what's been left behind. Mm -hmm. So we are dealing not only different data sets like Jonathan said, but also incomplete data sets. And Set. so we're trying to put this puzzle together and we don't have all the pieces yeah, no, that's really well said. I, I like to remind students sometimes, too, of how fluid things are. You know, for example, if you were a biblical scholar early 20th century prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and Qumran and that whole community... I mean, that was such a big thing, right? If you didn't have access to any of that, it's not like that stuff didn't exist, but it wasn't on our radar until that, you know, came along. And so, you know, we wonder what else is in the ground waiting for one of you guys to dig it up. I don't know, but... We're uh, trying. Keep <laughs> on digging. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I really appreciate the way you both articulated what archaeology is. It's really not a discipline that's designed to prove the Bible. I mean, it's kind of... It intersects with the Bible in certain ways, but it also it's a discipline unto itself. It's interested in ancient material culture. Its mandate isn't to prove the Bible. And I think that's a really important uh, thing that people have to keep in mind. It's I, interdisciplinary. It's inter. Yeah, yeah. It requires a lot of different facets, right? I, I want to think, too, a little bit more for people who are listening. And, and maybe we could flesh out a few more examples for people of 
places where archaeology and Bible maybe intersect and there's tension points. But um, I I'm, I guess I'm sensitive to a lot of information that gets put out in evangelical Protestant circles about archaeology and the Bible. For example, I can think of a popular study Bible that has an article on archaeology and the Bible at the end of it. And I mean, this is a, I think it's the ESV study Bible, if I'm not mistaken. There's probably similar articles in other study Bibles. But it strikes me that a lot of Christians have been told from people they trust that there is not a single, you know, archaeological discovery that in any way contradicts the Bible. In other words, there's a 100% agreement between what we have in material culture and their interpretation of the text. And the reason why that I find that troubling is because it sets up a scenario for people that actually end up looking into reality, like what we actually have, of potentially setting up a faith crisis or faith crises for people, and just not giving people a really good framework, I don't think, a, a theological framework for making sense of the text. Like, I think we have to let the Bible be the Bible, let the evidence be the evidence. And then, okay, I mean, if we have our faith convictions, that's great. Like, let's think about that theologically, what that might mean. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. And I'm guessing, given the context I know you both have taught in and come from, that this is an issue you've dealt with. And I'd be curious if you have any advice for our viewers or listeners maybe places where they could go for, for good information and things that they might be want to be wary of and how you yourself maybe think about this theologically. Good question. Sure. I know it's a big question, but I, it, it comes up a lot. It and, um, you know, as I've been spending more time trying to do kind of more public scholarship on online and, and so forth, I'm just becoming more, more and more aware of how much of a market and an appetite there is for people telling others from a kind of a position of authority, you have nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. It all proves the Bible. And that just makes me very nervous. <laughs> Rightly so. Well, part of the problem is, don't you think, Jonathan, that people are, are more reliant on what other people tell them as opposed to reading the text themselves. So when people say, oh, you know, for instance, the, the Hebrew Bible says all of Israel worshiped, you know, the Lord God completely and, you know, no, nothing else all the time. They were so devout and wonderful. And, and I think, have you read the Bible? <laughs> Because that's really not what even the Bible shows. Mm. And I think that's part of the problem is that um, even people in confessional contexts are not reading their own scripture. And I understand. I mean, it's the Hebrew Bible is it's long. It's got it's complicated. It's pretty gory in spots. It doesn't exactly show, you know, some people, particularly women being treated well. Mm -hmm. You know, I can understand why people avoid it. Mm -hmm. But then to assume that it rubber stamps their preconceived notions, you know, we we have to do our own our own reading at times. Mm -hmm. But I do think a lot of podcasts are doing great work, such as yours and others. (laughs) Um, Lots of good, you know, public scholarship books. Like I'm thinking of Jonathan's Behind the Scenes of the Old Testament book that he (laughs) co-edited. That's a great resource. There's a great article in there on household uh, food preparation, (laughs) by the way. Yeah. (laughs) By Cynthia. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and I think that's part of it is that we're not even, we're just, we're waiting for everybody to tell us as opposed Hmm. to kind of 
Yeah. Because, you know, because if I think about the, even that example about Israel not worshiping other gods, I think, well, if you've read the Hebrew Bible at all, it, it pops up over and over and over again. And this is one of those instances where we think material culture, the theory is, theories out there that material culture supports the biblical text in that we find these little clay figurines, especially in, in houses, you know, all throughout the Iron Age in particular. Um, so, and the theory is, is that these figurines are are representing, one of the theories is that they represent other um, deities, in particular, mm-hmm. like female deities, like Asherah. Mm-hmm. And so when students and I are talking about religion, and we think about household religion, and actually what's happening, as opposed to and what they think the text is saying, because somebody told them, oh, the Israelites sacrificed to God every day. <laughs> and right. they, were, they were obeying all these laws and rules. And it's like, well, if you actually read the text and you look at the material culture, they both say, they both illustrate that that is not the case. Mm-hmm. So this right. is one of those rare instances <laughs> <laughs> where the text well, and the material culture are supportive of each other. Yeah. 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 I think I, as Cynthia was saying, I often find that the people who are least familiar with the complexity of the text are the most opinionated about mm. what the text says. Mm-hmm. Um, but that in either field in biblical studies or archeology, span as you're exposed to the complexity of the data, um, it's hard not to be humbled by that complexity. So you asked earlier, Max, what should uh, listeners be wary of? Be wary of anyone uh, who tells you 100% about anything, uh, be it archaeology, be it in the biblical text. Mm-hmm. It's just not that simple. It's just mm-hmm. not that simple. I In one of my classes I used to teach, I had, had great fun reading two publications uh, from two authors who will be unnamed. Um, I know, I know and, what you're talking about. I've seen those two slides. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. you've seen my lectures. Yeah. yeah. Um, one that says archaeology 100% proves, and the other that says archaeology 100% disproves. Yeah. You know, and they're published within a year of each other. So are they digging in different holes? Uh, <laughs> no. You know, they're they're um, not nuancing, having a nuanced enough understanding of the data and mm. and the complexity of that data. It's so funny you say that because as I've been paying attention more to public discourse online and stuff, like Cynthia brought up, there are some really good, there's some really good scholarly resources out there. But what tends to get the most attention are one or the other, right? For sure, yeah. F- fundamentalist kind of thinking, whether it's skeptic fundamentalists or religious fundamentalists, they're really right. of the same kind. And I think there's something to to Cynthia's point is a lot of people don't want to really dig in and do their own work. They just yeah. want someone to tell them what they kind of want to hear already. And yeah, then they totally. just <laughs> dig in, like they just sink their, their heels into that. And, yeah. you know, and keep they consuming. follow the same, you know, groups or people on their socials that rubber stamp those preconceived notions. And so it just kind of right. gets, you know, embedded deeper and deeper. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. No, it's so true. I mean, when you're thinking maybe like how you put this together with a faith context, right, of people asking questions like, okay, so what's 
like what's going on with my Bible? Can I trust what I'm reading? Because I find that that's a lot of times what it comes down to for, for Christians is, well, can we still trust the Bible if we learn from material culture that the events on the ground, so to speak, maybe differ from the perspective that the biblical text is giving us? Love to hear from both of you just how you handle that. Uh, in a classroom setting, if you like, even in a church setting, I think that'd be really interesting to hear. I think, it, yeah, it relates to some of the things that we've already talked about and that Cynthia was just mentioning in terms of, I, I think many people come at the biblical text from a, a modern perspective, a contemporary perspective, and we expect the text to communicate in a certain way that just isn't how the text communicates. Um, mm-hmm. This is this is ancient literature written by and for people in ancient contexts. So it it doesn't mean that it it doesn't have relevance for us today. Of course, uh, many of us in faith communities celebrate and resonate with with that continuing relevance. Uh, So it's not that, but it's what is it actually saying and how is it communicating that message? Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, fancy theological terms that we slap on these uh, different doctrines of Bible reading that are really modernist constructions that we uh, try to fit this square peg of ancient literature into this round hole Mm. of uh, contemporary hermeneutic doctrines, you know, Mm -hmm. and and that just doesn't work and creates all sorts of problems for us. You Mm. know, so it's not so simple to say the Bible says, you know, X, Y, and Z. Well, you may understand the Bible to say that, but are you accounting for uh, source critical, text critical, redaction issues? Are you uh, accounting for the biggest thing, genre? Uh, what what genre and how do we identify that genre in a comparative context with other ancient Near Eastern literature? And then the big point is that the Bible isn't first and foremost about history. You know, it's it's far more concerned with giving this portrait of the God of Israel and and the people of God in this in this ancient context. It's not trying to give us a date or iron out certain examples of, you know, where something later with our modern scientific objectivity and our rigor of scientific method is going to prove something right to, you know, make all the doubters cry and flee into the church or something like that. That's just what a, what a uh, chronologically and theologically arrogant uh, position to try to impose on uh, this wonderful gift that the Bible is. So basically you're not a fan of uh, Christian apologetics. (laughs) I'm just just kidding. (laughs) No, I think there, I think there's some good examples of apologetics, but this is the, what you just described is uh, a lot of popular, I think evangelical apologetics Mm. is that we're going to use data to beat you over the head with it to the point where you're either coming to Jesus or you're an idiot. One or the other. It's not, it's not, not... (laughs) that's always been so effective. Yeah. So super effective. It works. It works well. Wonders, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. What, what you just described, Jonathan, I try to summarize sometimes for students with the phrase, let the Bible be the Bible. Yeah. Um, in, like in, other wor- in other words, like, I think it's not it's not a bad thing to have certain doctrines of inspiration. What What's bad about it is when you 
assume a certain way that that has to be and then you superimpose that upon the text that's like, right yeah. like your point about ancient you know ancient literature what's fascinating is what you just articulated most of the early christian readers of the text would completely agree with the bible mm-hmm. isn't actually primarily a history text it's it right. has it has history in it but it's mm-hmm. primarily a spiritual text um, right. i mean that that was like taken for granted in the early church mm-hmm. so right. it's 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 funny how those things kind of you know, change and adapt over yep. time. We, we oftentimes assume that our perspective is the perspective that Christians have always had, but it's just not, yeah, it's not the case. So, and then well, we're think... very selective in our literalism too. Oh, for and, sure. Uh, 100%. For sure. Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah, and... that's so true. I think you made a good point there that I was going to um, bring up was the spiritual nature of it. I mean, if we're talking about ancient Near Eastern literature, I think for the most part, ancient Near Eastern literature is is spiritual. It's theological. Their their worldview is a spiritual worldview. Everything right. is seen through the lens of their relationship with their gods and trying to appease them <laughs> and trying to um you know, figure out what they, you know, did wrong, trying, you know, everything is seen through that, that spiritual lens. Hmm. So when we get to difficult texts that say, well, God commanded this and God said this, and Hmm. it's, that can be really difficult for people Mm -hmm. to be like, well, why would God say, if God's love, why would God say to command to kill all these, these people? So yeah. as you were saying, let the Bible to be the Bible, one of those is to remember not only the genre, not only that it's literature and not a science, not a science or history textbook, mm-hmm. but that it's also spiritual, theological mm-hmm. in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's how that lens, that lens is used to, to look at everything through, through their God, at their God, their relationship with their God, and trying to remember what you know, the complicated, complex nature of the Bible is, it's actually quite beautiful. I mean, if you, if you think about all the, the time and energy and creativity that these authors and redactors and compilers, all these people involved over a very long period of time, all that they invested in this collection. And I think that's another thing that Mm. people need to keep in mind is that this isn't a book, you know, it's, it's an anthology, it's a library of books Mm -hmm. and that each book in itself is a collection of material. Mm -hmm. Um, So keeping in mind, so when students get to the part where it says here that so-and-so fought Goliath and killed him, but it says here that so-and-so fought and killed Goliath, go, well, Let's think about how, you know, these pieces were kind of put together and what were the possible, possible motivations. I mean, because there's, you know, we yeah. can't figure everything out. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, 100%. We just have good ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what you're highlighting there, too, is so interesting. It's another facet of our modern thinking being different is from our modern mindset, if we're writing a history book or something like that, it would never occur to us to take conflicting accounts and just slap them side by side and be like there you go but from an ancient perspective they do that all the time and that also i think tells us that they're thinking about things a little bit differently that Mm -hmm. different accounts can be mutually interpretive you know i mean think about the opening of genesis for example um but we have these in other places as well and i think there's something really interesting and beautiful about that i mean i just speaking for myself i 
I think that the more that I've learned from other like archaeologists and, and as a biblical scholar, it's definitely complicated my picture of what the Bible is, but it in no way has it decreased my faith. It's actually increased it and, and, and nuanced it. And so I, I don't I would just want people to hear or listening or watching. This isn't something to be afraid of. We're, we're not, mm-hmm. you know, we're saying there's actually a more beautiful world of, of scripture available to you. And the archaeological data definitely can play a role in our understanding of scripture. So it's a it's another tool, I guess, that we have for understanding the Bible well and and what the Bible is trying to communicate uh, in its in its context. Do you all have any suggestions on I mean, we mentioned Jonathan's great resource, which Cynthia contributed to. (laughs) I'll definitely have a link, a link to that in the description because you're going to want to pick up a copy of that book. But any other um, any other go to resources, maybe either web or print that you um, would point somebody to if they're just looking for sound, credible information on uh, biblical archaeology? Well, I'll, I'll plug Cynthia's book. Um, <laughs> there's the uh, the five-minute Southern, is yes. it Levantine Archaeologist? Five-minute uh, Archaeologist in archaeologist the Southern Levant, yeah. In the Southern mm-hmm. Levant, yeah. yeah. Had them backwards. But uh, the beauty of that is that all of the discussions are a couple of pages top. So in our, in our soundbite culture, you want sound information uh, in a readily accessible format. That's right. Uh, highly recommend that, that resource. Link also in the oh, description. <laughs> this was not planned. This I can, is not a I, marketing. Right? <laughs> I can I can add them in. That's easy. That's what I. That's what I do. <laughs> that's so funny. Well, thank you for that. I would say you know, biblical archaeology review is a good source. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're especially geared towards the the lay reader, but they definitely have like a sensational kind of um, approach at times. So. Uh, but they do get, you know, legit scholars and archaeologists to contribute. Um, and they also do a biblical archaeology fest. They have in-person and online. So they there's some sources there for that. There's I'm trying With to great think. panelists like Cynthia. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there is... Um, I mean, there's a couple podcasts, but there's there's one I haven't listened to it, so I, I don't want to say, <laughs> say anything about it because maybe it's not I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's I would say those are some good sources to start with. Oh, and um, you know, the University of Iowa has a Bible and Archaeology website. Mm. I don't know if you've had a chance to look that up, um, Jonathan, but. Um, Bob Cargill, professor at University mm. of Iowa, who used to be the editor of um, Biblical Archaeology Review. He has a website and they're doing all sorts of like short little media clips. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So that that would be a, a good source. And then, of course, there's places like the Bible for Normal People and mm-hmm. OnScript and um yeah on script's great actually i had I had, I had matt lynch on the podcast a little while ago <laughs> it's cool because some, some listeners might want to go back to that episode he wrote a book about divine violence and warfare yeah. and so we you know we talk about what's going on in some of these biblical portraits and how archaeology and material culture actually can help illuminate mm-hmm. what these texts might be up to and everything so yeah on script's really good does asor put out anything for kind of like lay readers or, or anything like that there's the uh, yeah the online or the um email ancient Near East today is a 
email listserv kind of thing that I think okay. folks can just so that's another sign one. up for. Yeah. yeah cool. And there's a podcast, um, called the ancient Near East today, isn't it called that one? Um, sorry. Yeah. That they, instead of talking with like archeologists, they, um, they are three archeologists who take like a, you know, something that's in the news recently mm. and they kind of, you know, talk about it and dissect it. And, um, so it's not exactly like a, Hey, let me teach you about this, but it's more of like talking about some of the topics of the day. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Awesome. So the idea is there's a lot of good resources out there for people. We encourage you to (laughs) check it out. And, um, yeah, thank you both so much for the conversation. This is really fun. I'd love to pick your brains longer, Mm -hmm. but, uh, Jonathan, can I, can I ask, would you mind sharing the, did you ever present that one paper on the, the strange fire, uh, from that, that one, (laughs) that one news story? I did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, So, and hopefully I'll publish it soon too. Nice. Um, Nice. It's funny as, uh, Cynthia said, biblical archeology span review, they love those kinds of, uh, sensational stories. But uh, as Cynthia said, they really, as much as the title attracts that kind of audience, they they really treat it well and they nuance uh, they the, the way that they present it. So they, they really, I think, are a wonderful public resource. But I, I bring that back up because they were at that paper and wanted me to publish it. Is that right? Is said, that right? I said, yeah. first, uh, I'm going to submit it to a peer review journal. Then, you know, then, <laughs> then we'll, you, see. You, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, but, that yeah. story, that story came out a few years ago, right? It's an idea I've had uh, for a while or a suspicion I've had uh, for a while about the story in Leviticus 10 of Nadab and Abihu. And the their, strange, their fire. strange fire. Yeah. 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 And uh, the fact that the, uh, the punishment for the the strange fire in, in terms of the way it's uh, textualized into the ritual traditions of, of ancient Israel, um, you know, in the immediate context of the story, they're incinerated uh, horrifically. Uh, but in, in terms of priestly ritual going forward, the prohibition is against being intoxicated uh, when one comes into the presence of um, of the God of Israel. So I, I always had a, a suspicion based on the widespread use of mind-altering substances in the Late Bronze and Iron Age religious culture of the Levant that perhaps this was um, you know, this was the case or there was some uh, this is story that is uh, polemic against the use of incorporation of of mind altering substances in the Israelite cult. And then there was a discovery just a few years ago. I was going to uh, ask. Residue analysis. <laughs> yeah. Of uh, of the materials um, on two uh, incense altars at the site of Arad which has many indications that this was a, a Yahwistic worship center. So I, I tried to connect those um, pieces of evidence in the paper, arguing that that's exactly what um, Leviticus 10 is referring to. And even the fact that in the priestly literature, as uh, you both have been saying, sometimes we have different voices and different traditions that are brought together and uh, preserved as a singular presentation, but there are actually differences that are preserved in the account as we have it. So there, there are different incense recipes. Um, and, and so I'm arguing uh, that 
the the one that's prohibited is this one that included cannabis, which is what the uh, residue analysis from the Arad <laughs> altar uh, <laughs> altar they, suggested. So stay tuned. Strange fire indeed. Yes, yes, I love it. I love, I love it. it. That's a fun place to end. Yeah. Sadly, they got they they got rid of the fun incense recipe early on, but uh, <laughs> um, well. Yeah. Thanks both. Um, I just appreciate you you so much and uh, look forward to talking again with you soon. Thanks for being on. Mutual, Max. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You've just finished another episode of On The Way. Thanks so much for listening to us. We so appreciate it. If you haven't already, make sure that you are following or subscribed to the podcast so that you get the release of each new episode. And we'd very much appreciate if you would write us or rate us on whichever podcast platform you use. That would be awesome. The biggest encouragement I have is for you to consider joining our Facebook group if you haven't already. Link is posted in the episode description. This is a community for all people to just come together, encourage one another in our faith, share resources, and continue on this journey together. Thanks all. We love you. (music) 